Welcome back, friends, to the March 2018 edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. Uh, just a little bit late on this one. I did squeeze out a select game last February, which I'm kind of making it sound like a bodily function there, but that's not really the intention. But uh, to, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, the kids have been with me a lot. And, you know, we're at a stage where we're demanding constant attention. They're with me 24-7. It's really kind of hard to podcast under those circumstances. So, I have literally um, spread out something like (laughs) 40 feet of USB extension cable under the door to my bedroom, and I am now sitting in the master bath trying to get something recorded for you fine patient folks. So, What's been going on? There's been a lot going on because uh, it's 2017 the last time we sat here and did this thing. So, without further ado, let's talk a little bit about science and technology, shall we? stuff going on here. Of course, I've been compiling these notes since December because I was anticipating recording something in January to release in February. Well, so that's resulted in, you know, just a huge snowball of sci and tech news here. Rocket Lab successfully launched an orbital-grade rocket from New Zealand. So we could now have Kiwis in space. Of course, um... SpaceX successfully launched a convertible, a red convertible, uh, not just into orbit, but then kicked it into an elliptical, it's still a heliocentric orbit, but it uh, goes a little bit past Mars, and eventually it will come back toward Earth a little bit inside Earth's orbit, and then back out toward Mars. You know, I don't think it's going to hit us anytime soon. I think the, uh, from what I read, the the final characterization of the orbit is such that it's going to be a few hundred years before this red convertible rolls through Earth's airspace in a way that, uh, in a way that we could actually spot it and identify it again. Although, apparently, even from a distance, its extremely unique color uh, stands out quite a bit, even through a telescope. Now, I follow a lot of scientists, especially space scientists and planetary scientists, on Twitter. 
and I noticed the reactions to this SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch were very, very mixed. Um, I, I get it. I, I get the, uh, not really the complaints, but the kind of eye-rolling and, uh, you know, Elon. I, I get that. You know, it, it could have... It could have included some sort of experiment package as a payload. Even if you were just going to go with the car, you could have made a long exposure material endurance experiment out of that, and it still would have been fascinating. But I keep coming back to this. This first flight of the Falcon Heavy, which was, aside from the loss of the core stage, a complete success because... You know, nothing says you're living in the future like watching two rockets simultaneously return to two launch pads on live TV intact. This was a proving flight for the Falcon Heavy. This was not about the car. This was about the Falcon Heavy. And even Elon Musk himself said prior to launch that there was, you know, about a 50% chance that the flight would go smoothly and a 50% chance that it would blow the hell up. You don't put someone else's payload on a rocket with those kind of odds. The car was not the point of the launch. The, the point of the launch was validation and gathering engineering data on the performance of this three-rocket cluster because a Falcon Heavy is basically three Falcon 9s strapped together, uh, two of them as outboard strap-on boosters, sort of like the solid rocket boosters, on a space shuttle stack. So, the car was a bonus PR stunt. And, you know, there was absolutely no guarantee the thing wouldn't explode two miles up. But let's look at the bright side. Access to deep space and the outer solar system has just gotten a lot easier. You have more things on the menu than sitting around waiting for SLS. Which, you know, I am not one of these people who, uh, you know, talks up Falcon Heavy at the expense of SLS and thinks SLS should be canceled. No, I would rather have them both up and running. That would be cool. So that's really the, the takeaway here from the Falcon Heavy launch and the, the infamous car. And, you know, I, I will say this one more thing about the car. It got people talking. It got kids talking. It got my kids talking. You know, there's a car in space. Who is that in the car? It's a dummy. Okay, but still, there's a car in space. It was very much an inspirational stunt, and I find it really hard to fault SpaceX or Elon for that. Imagery data sets are now available from Japan's Akatsuki Orbiter the Venus Climate Orbiter, more formally. People have been processing uh, images from these data sets, and holy cow, we need to send some more robots to Venus. And this is something I go on at great length about on Twitter to anyone who will sit still and listen, which isn't very many people. We need to be spending at least as much time on Venus as we do on Mars, because with Venus, you basically have a a live lab for a runaway greenhouse effect. Now, we're all down here talking about climate change and how Earth is going to get a lot hotter. Well, you know, e even easier than it is to get to Mars, we've got this planet 
inside our orbit that has its own runaway greenhouse effect, we can run experiments there on mitigating that effect. And it doesn't kill anybody because, you know, there's pretty much nothing alive on Venus. It's an oven. We don't want Earth to be an oven. I'm willing to sacrifice Venus in its natural state and, you know, maybe borderline terraform it in order to find out how we might be able to mitigate the damage we've done to our own atmosphere, our own planet, our own climate. So, yeah, we need to be sending lots of stuff to Venus. Feed it robots. It's hungry. Now, uh, some interesting findings from beyond our orbit. Mars may be losing its atmosphere because, as a smaller planet than Earth, its gravity simply isn't enough to hang on to an atmosphere. However, it seems like it was holding on to a more dense atmosphere at one point in its history, so there's... I, I think that's an oversimplification to just say, oh, you know, it's a small planet, it can't, can't hang on to an atmosphere. Um, okay, it, there's obviously more going on there. Out at Jupiter, I'm sure everyone has seen these pictures from Juno. The, in the infrared band showing the north and south poles of Jupiter, vortices full of vortices. We have this multiple vortex thing going on, and it's kind of funny because, you know, if you look at it in visible light, Jupiter just looks like a hot mess, and yet you have these geometric arrangements of giant cyclonic storms at the North and South Poles that actually bring to mind kind of the the orderly hexagon at the North Pole of Saturn. So there is some kind of order going on at Jupiter, but wow. It, it has all been it's also been found that the atmosphere and you know the resulting turbulence runs much deeper within Jupiter than we previously thought. So lots of Lots of interesting stuff. Uh, for its 14th anniversary of landing on Mars, the Opportunity Mars <laughs> Exploration Rover took a selfie. Now, it was a bit blurry because the selfie was taken with a microscopic camera at the end of an arm that the engineers figured out how to point back at Opportunity. Now, Curiosity does this sort of thing all the time. Opportunity, they didn't really, uh, it, we weren't in the selfie age <laughs> in 2002, you know, it, it wasn't a thing yet, and so they hadn't, uh, no, seriously, I, I think they hadn't realized the engineering value, you know, sort of the housekeeping and, uh, checking up on the general well-being of the spacecraft value of having a camera look back at itself, so they, they kind of finagled a way to make that happen, but it it came out a little bit low res. However, it's really cool because you can see that the solar panels are mostly clear. Um, you know, wind and movement have kept shaking the dust off of them. So there are parts of opportunity that despite being on Mars for you know, 14 years, 
it uh, you know it almost looks factory showroom fresh it's a pretty good trick and the other thing is opportunity is all solar curiosity is powered by a nuclear battery it's powered by the same sort of uh, radioisotope thermonuclear generators that power outer solar system spacecraft like you know the Voyagers Pioneers 10 and 11 New Horizons Cassini Galileo and so uh, Curiosity has a finite lifespan. Now I think it's still going to be rolling around for quite a while up there, but as long as the funding isn't cut off, which you know in the day and age that we're living in now is a dreadful possibility always lurking around the corner, opportunity is all solar. It could conceivably outlast Curiosity as far as remaining functional. NASA's Outer Planets Assessment Group is uh, registering some new support behind a flagship class mission, something along the lines of the aforementioned Cassini and Galileo probes, to Neptune and Triton, possibly dropping off a smaller orbiter at Uranus along the way. Now, I, I am as much of an Ice Giants fan as I am a Venus fan. I think they ought to... Uh, go ahead and send something the size and capability of Cassini to both Uranus and Neptune. It, it is it's difficult to get out there. You might as well make it count for something. And finally, I found this little uh, news tidbit kind of interesting. There's a company called Arc Mission. Uh, if you want to look them up on the web, it's arcmission.com. However, it's not spelled arc, it's spelled arch. So go to archmission.com on the web. The company is called Arc Mission. They want to send the totality of human knowledge to other planets in the solar system or beyond and possibly set up some sort of uh, network where they could update these little... Uh, you know, last bastions of human knowledge called ARCs. And I believe they sent a a demo a test model up on the uh, Tesla Roadster that SpaceX launched on the Falcon Heavy containing Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. And, you know, like I said, they're talking about setting up a, a network of store and forward satellites that would update these arcs periodically or perhaps regularly. I mean, you know, depending on where you're putting them, you're talking about transmission time that's uh, significant. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, live updates and, you know, it'll take the latest Windows 10 update. That'd be pretty bad to brick something that's stuck on another planet. But the idea is that if something happens to the human race or to large portions of the human race, the body of human knowledge, arts, sciences, literature, history, all of it, is preserved elsewhere for someone to find. So I, I don't know much more about it than that. It's an interesting idea. The technology, I'm sure, is still in the early stages. We've had several deaths, unfortunate deaths, as if there's any other kind, 
over the past few months, astronaut John Young flew in both the Gemini and Apollo programs. He walked on the moon as the commander of Apollo 16. Is it 15 or 16? Okay. I'm losing it because I'm recording this at uh, 11.30 at night. John Young also piloted the very first space shuttle mission, and uh, when that mission was still on the drawing board, NASA was talking about making it a suborbital flight only to test the wacky, crazy, never-flown-abort mode, which fortunately was never flown, that would involve uh, you know, sacrificing the external tank and the boosters and flying the shuttle back to the runway at Kennedy Space Center as an emergency. They were going to deliberately trigger that situation to test that abort mode. And uh, John Young basically told them, um, you know, if you're going to do that, you need to find someone else to fly it. Because, uh, you know, if I wanted to play Russian roulette, I'd put a gun to my head. Bruce McCandless, another NASA astronaut, left us. Bruce was the astronaut who first flew the untethered man maneuvering unit. You know, it was the, the famous jetpack that allowed him to uh, maneuver independently of the space shuttle. Bruce also had a big hand in developing that all the way back to, believe it or not, the latter Gemini flights. Both Gemini 11 and 12 had variations of this that never got tested. Um, a version of it later flew on Skylab, and you know he was he was in on it from the engineering end all along, and finally got to fly the thing for himself in one of the early shuttle missions. Ray Thomas of the Moody Blues has left us. Ursula K. Le Guin very influential science fiction author. Composer John Morris, who scored most of Mel Brooks' uh, peak comedies, you know, sort of from his peak era, from Blazing Saddles onward. Uh, John Morris also scored Spaceballs, among others. Uh, High Anxiety was also John Morris. Other composers we've lost in the past few months, Dominic Frontier, was a uh, you know a composer who could do anything from big band to avant-garde. You probably know him best for the you know almost electronic noise-like intro to the Outer Limits. He also did the theme song from the 1960s series, The Invaders, a Quinn Martin production, and my favorite theme song of his was from a 1972 sort of spy-fi series called Search. Just a really catchy theme song. I might spring it on you somewhere in this podcast. You never know, because I uh, I liked the theme so much I made myself an extended mix for my own listening pleasure. Might as well share it, because that's so obscure it's unlikely to get an official release. Composer-wise, we also lost Johan Johansson, Icelandic composer who had done such movies as Arrival and I believe he did The Theory of Everything, which is the uh, movie about Stephen Hawking, which we'll get to in a couple of seconds here. Uh, 
Uh, he also did a concept album uh, around an old IBM mainframe computer that I particularly liked because the computer in its normal operating mode would generate very specific tones and you could actually kind of kind of eke music out of this old IBM mainframe. And he built a whole album around that, you know, with, uh, you know, an orchestra or a small string ensemble, you know, in various configurations, playing around this very limited palette of notes that would be, you know, completely unintentionally emitted by this old mainframe computer. Uh, Johann Johansson was... He was actually in Germany for a scoring session, failed to show up. They went and did a welfare check on him, and they found him unresponsive, which is really tragic because he was uh, he was far too young. Far too young. Writer and producer Paul DeMio was the co-creator of the 90s TV series The Flash. He was also the co-screenwriter of The Rocketeer. And... Uh, he left us, unfortunately. One of the stars of MASH, David Ogden Stiers, has left us. As well as Sir Ken Dodd, a comic genius from the UK, who really one of his more unlikely <laughs> resume entries was doing a guest shot on Doctor Who in 1987 that he once said was the only death scene he'd ever filmed. But he's, you know, very well known for his music hall and stage comedy performances in the UK, you know, dating back decades. And, of course, we lost Professor Stephen Hawking. Was a, uh, a seminal voice in the study of quantum theory, astrophysics, uh, theoretical physics, and so many other areas. He 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 definitely had areas of specialty that you know he knew a lot about. However, his status as a celebrity, I think he you know began doing things like cautioning us about the rise of artificial intelligence, rendering the human race extinct, and things like that that weren't really in his area, and yet. You know, he was so brilliant, you kind of had to uh, give some weight to what he said. Now, I have noticed the same thing happening around Stephen Hawking that I've seen happen with Carl Sagan, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye, which is otherwise rational people who would beat other people over the head for following a religion, kind of forming, uh, you know, cults of personality around their famous celebrity you know, their favorite celebrity scientists. Now, uh, I grant you, the whole reason Sagan or Tyson or Hawking or Bill Nye or any of these guys have embraced the fame that they have is to be a lightning rod drawing people to the scientific method and not necessarily to themselves. And yet, they are also smart enough to know that that is not the only thing people are going to be interested in. Uh, I think idolizing great scientists to the point that they almost become a religious figure in themselves, that's the exact opposite of what they would want. So, there's, uh, 
If there's eulogizing to be done, there's introspection to be done, and examination, but for right now, uh, theoretical physics has lost one of its most influential voices, because let's not forget, at the time that Professor Hawking, going back to when I was a little, little kid, was offering evidence to validate the Big Bang Theory. Um, the theory of how the universe began was still up for grabs at that point. Now we generally accept that the the Big Bang in some form is the correct explanation for the origins of the universe. <clears throat> so that's how influential Professor Stephen Hawking was. So that's our science and technology roundup for the past few months. You know, I'm not trying to turn this into a quarterly show, but, you know, the notes, good grief. They kind of seemed like a, you know, a quarter of a year worth of material there. Sadly. And I should also point out, um, you know, one of the reasons I give URLs and links and things to articles, you know, that I'm referencing here is because I am not a scientist. I am not a degreed scientist. I am an enthusiastic amateur who does a lot of reading trying to keep up on this stuff, especially planetary science and volcanology and meteorology, three fields that I'm especially passionate about. And, you know, also, you know, they have some they have some interrelation. I mean, you look at giant storms on Jupiter, well, you're talking about giant cyclonic storms. And so we kind of have to extrapolate from what we know about Earth weather, try to figure out, okay, why are there giant cyclonic storms as big as the Earth, or bigger, that are raging on the surface of Jupiter for hundreds of years? And then you have some of them that just disappear into the filament ribbon of a jet stream in the blink of an eye. So, it's fascinating stuff. I, you know, I understand different people have different interests. I just, I'm amazed when anyone says they're not fascinated by this stuff. That to me, it's endlessly fascinating. But, you're now in the part of the podcast that you probably uh, pulled up to the curb for in the first place. Now that we've gotten our science roundup out of the way, let's talk about some fiction, or at least some science fiction. So, uh, how'd you like The Last Jedi, huh? Pretty good. Moving on. Okay, no, you're not getting off that easy. Um, I'm just going to lay it on the table, and I know this is not necessarily a an opinion held by everyone. I thought The Last Jedi may have been the best Star Wars movie since The Empire Strikes Back. 
there were so many things that I liked about it. It defied all expectations and, you know, gave you grouchy Luke who doesn't want to train any more Jedi. And yet at the same time, in the end, it still gives us what we wanted and, you know, what we paid ten bucks to walk into the theater for, which is, you know, Luke Skywalker, badass Jedi Master who was single-handedly going to face down a bunch of adats or, you know, whatever the you know, the technological evolution of adats is 30 years later. The Last Jedi did something really important. It broadened the scope of who can be a Jedi. And that's that's important. I mean, it was always part of the mythology that there were many Jedi. There used to be many Jedi Knights. And by the time you got to Star Wars, you were down to Yoda and Obi-Wan. Although, in Star Wars, you didn't even know about Yoda. So far as you knew, Obi-Wan was the last... He was the last Jedi. As far as we know here going into this movie, Luke is the last Jedi. But I like that, you know, we finally returned to kind of the the larger palette that the prequels hinted at having, but, you know, perhaps failed to execute properly. The use of the Force, the mastery of the Force, is not limited to the Skywalker family line. And you know, this all-important high midichlorian count, and I know everyone loves talking about midichlorians. Um, you know, this can happen to a random girl from a backwater planet, or it can happen to, you know, a stable boy who reaches for his broom and it comes to him without him physically going over to fetch it. And, you know, the thought occurred to me, uh, it could be that Anakin's off-the-charts midichlorian count, yeah, even if it was something artificially initiated by Darth Sidious or Darth Plagueis the Wise or whoever you want to attribute it to, it could that could have been the beginning of a new kind of connection between the Force and corporeal life. You know, which is... That kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with... You know, one of my personal feelings about uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, you know, everyone treats it as an illness that needs to be addressed or cured or dealt with. But in our world of information overload, I'm starting to think that the ADHD people have a better chance of taking it all in. Um, I really liked the, you know, the new character, Rose, who showed up here. She was a really interesting character. She wanted to believe Finn was a hero, and Finn was about to, uh, you know, crap out and abandon ship. The thing was, in order to live up to what she thought of him, Finn had to start acting like a hero consistently. And then that inspired her to do the same. Because she was trying to live up to what she thought he was. And so it's, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, that interplay of, you know, who is changing whom here? Uh, another new character I liked, Admiral Holdo. Um, I need her action figure, Stat, because this lady kicked all kinds of ass. Now, I kind of have this long-standing crush on Laura Dern, so, uh, you know, I, I was kind of pre-sold on the character. But I... 
just thought she was really interesting. I'm, I'm a little upset that, you know, we meet her just in time to lose her. I, you know, it, it is my understanding that she figures into the books, especially those going into uh, Leia's younger years in the, uh, you know, in the new expanded universe. So uh, I may have to check some of those out because I really liked that character. Uh, what else did I like? I liked the fact that the uh, the Ray and Ren versus uh, Snoke's guards fight was done without the kind of over the top, you know, CGI puppetry stuff that really kept me from taking the prequels lightsaber battles too terribly seriously. But, you know, I understand what they were trying to do with the prequels. You know, these guys have such command of the force they can basically fly well you know if I wanted that I'd be holding out for the next Superman movie um, a footnote there I'm not holding out for the next Superman movie sorry it, it just seemed kind of ridiculous I like the fact that um, you know whether the statement here is that they are untrained in the force or you know perhaps don't have as much access to the force as someone like Luke does or Snoke um, I, I just like that their fight was grounded and visceral and, you know, it, you're dealing with real physics, basically. I, I really liked that. Speaking of that fight, um, I thought it was really interesting and very telling that Snoke's guards, the guys in red, seem to be trained specifically to fight someone with Jedi skills. Like, uh, oh, I don't know, whoever Snoke picked as an apprentice. And, uh, y you know, I think it's not too much of a uh, stretch to say that um, Snoke's apprentice would have been toast if not for Ray pitching in just a little bit to help him out. And, you know, Snoke, oh buddy... If you're so worried that your apprentice is going to turn on you, that you've specifically trained your guards to kill that apprentice, um, maybe don't shroud your entire throne room in flammable red fabric. I mean, it looks kind of neat, but um, there's a practicality and safety issue there. The weakest part of The Last Jedi, and I think everyone can agree on this, was the slow speed chase as the uh, Resistance limped away from the First Order in a white Bronco whose needle was hovering just above empty. I understand why they were doing what they had to do there, but it it's one of those things that, you know, coming out of the theater, you kind of scratch your head about it a little and say, okay, you know, that part of it didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Finally, as much marketing exposure as they got, I was kind of surprised that there was maybe all of a minute and a half, two minutes of Porg-centered screen time. It's okay. I, I still like Porgs. We have quite a collection of Porgs here at the house, so me and the boys do. I guess if anything has really surprised me, it's that we don't have a ready-made Porg animated series going into production, sort of like the old days of Ewoks and droids. I mean, I could probably write it myself if they need me to, but, uh... I don't know. It seemed like, seemed like a lot of build-up about Porgs, and 
you know, my oldest is still like, okay, where are the plushies of the crystal foxes? Where did the crystal critters go? Well, where they went is nowhere because they're not as cute as Porgs. So let's go from Star Wars to Star Trek, specifically Chapter 2, the second half of the season, the first season of Star Trek Discovery. Um, <clears throat> I feel like this is going to be so cursory because there is so much to pack in here, so much more than a two-and-a-half-hour movie. Um, I'm a little bit irritated that the fan sites felt compelled to do so much detective work about, you know, the actor's middle name or whatever, whether or not there was a record of him on IMDb, to predict that Ash Tyler was, in fact, the Klingon Voke. I, um... You know, if I wanted spoilers, I would go to spoiler sites, but this theory, you know, got headlined everywhere you know, where you couldn't avoid it. Oh, we think this character is this character. And so the reveal when it did happen was kind of underwhelming to me. I was like, uh, hmm. Well, they were right. I was kind of hoping to be surprised there. I mean, it, it made sense from a narrative standpoint, but I was just, I don't know. Sometimes fandom, <laughs> a lot of times, fandom is its own worst enemy. I liked that uh, we are back to taking the Mirror Universe deadly seriously. Uh, Deep Space Nine in particular kept going back to the Mirror Universe over and over again and using it as an excuse to do over-the-top, you know, lurid, gutsy, and sexy, you know, borderline slapstick things with it. Um, no, the Mirror Universe, as it was established in the original series, is a scary place where if you fail to look like you fit in, you're liable to wind up with, you know, you're going to wind up shanked in a corridor somewhere. You're going to wind up with a knife in your back. So I liked that we went back to taking the Mirror Universe very seriously, you know, to the point of, can... You know, can Burnham even trust anyone enough to tell them, okay, this is where I'm really from, this is why, you know, there were reports of me being dead, and now here I am, and this is how I need to get back. I just, I found that quite, quite interesting and very, very tense, a lot of tension there, you know, hoping that these people wouldn't be found out. Uh, I know a lot of fans flipped out because there was a there was a brief display, a wireframe diagram of the Constitution class USS Defiant. Now, the funny thing about the Defiant is it was originally featured in the original series. We're talking about you know 1968-69 season episode, um, the Tholian Web, and it disappeared into something called the Interphase. Which I believe there was a game publisher by that name decades later, which is completely beside the point. But the Defiance disappeared into the interface, and then we revisit that in the last season, in fact, the last few episodes of Star Trek Enterprise, where they basically say that the, you know, the interface was the Tholians pulling this 
23rd century ship back into the 22nd century to reverse engineer it and you know, win the Time War. Or, oh, sorry, Temporal Cold War, the Time War is Doctor Who. Although, I have found that if I'm in front of a convention audience and I really want to piss off everyone in the room, I will tell them the Enterprise's Temporal Cold War and Doctor Who's Time War are the same conflict. If you want to see a bunch of people leave all at once, try it. It's awesome. It's awesome. You suddenly have a much thinner crowd to deal with and, you know, a lot less stress about speaking to a large crowd. Um, now the funny thing is everyone's so flipped up, flipped out about this wireframe diagram of the Defiant that showed up briefly on a screen because, you know, that's not what a Constitution-class ship looks like. The funny thing is, this, um, this ship from the 23rd century, from, yeah, from the 23rd century, was, uh, pulled back in time, and it has been, you know, out of its time stream for something like 90 years, so technically the Defiant at this point is a century old, basically. It's a century old, and it's been in a war, and, you know, I'm pretty sure it got the hell beat out of it, needed some modifications, needed some repairs from, you know, 22nd century engineers you have no idea what a Constitution-class starship is because that happened a century after them, and so they put it back together with 22nd century technology as best they could. That's why the diagram looks different. Um, it's not really that hard to figure out a story justification for that, but people flipped, and we'll, you know, we'll get back to people flipping out about a Constitution-class ship showing up in Discovery shortly. Um... I really liked the reveal of Mirror Lorca. However, you know, the unanswered question is, you know, okay, so there's there's a Lorca, a Captain Lorca from the Mirror Universe. Well, there was obviously a Captain Lorca in, you know, in our timeline as well, because Admiral Cornwell knew him um, <clears throat> pretty well, it would seem. And so, uh, yeah, where is... Uh, where is Prime Timeline Lorca? I, either way, I really enjoyed the character. I, I also inordinately enjoyed him getting killed off because once he revealed his true nature, it was like, okay, buddy, you know, really like the actor, really like the performance, but the character needs to die. Um, I hope he's not that green spore that landed on Tilly's shoulder. <laughs> about about which the less said the better. I mean, that just took me back to the, uh, you know, the end of the 1980 Flash Gordon movie. The end? Question mark. Now, I think we spent one episode too long in the Mirror Universe. This is just... I don't know, it's just a gut feeling. I don't think there was anything that happened there that wasn't entirely necessary. But it seemed like, you know, we snapped back to the Prime timeline and the war that we had been fighting all season that we're wondering if the Federation is going to survive. And we're going to wrap that up in two episodes. It just seemed a little bit, uh, a little bit on the quick side. 
However, I will say this about that. I trust the writers working on Star Trek Discovery. You know, their zingers and surprises, the ones that weren't called out in advance by fandom, were real zingers and surprises. I, uh, I really enjoyed the show. I, and I'm definitely on board for Season 2. And, you know, as for people complaining, you know, the war wrapped up really quick. Man, that takes me back 20 years to the summer of 97. Babylon 5 fandom complaining, you know, hey, that war wrapped up real quick with a bunch of talking about philosophies. And, you know, not enough shooting. Maybe that's what a war is if you take the shooting away for just a brief moment. It's a difference in philosophies. It's a deadly serious difference in philosophies, but... So, you know, I... I found the return to the Prime timeline kind of unsatisfyingly fast, but I could also see where the war would end that quickly. And oh dear, that cliffhanger. Here comes the Enterprise! Oh, wait, that doesn't look like the Enterprise as we've seen it before. Of course, this is a wartime Enterprise. Maybe they're trying out some new technology on it that will be refined and uh, put back on it later in the refit. You have to keep in mind that the, uh, the Enterprise is an old ship by the time Discovery is launched. Because if Discovery is taking place... Um, Ten years after the cage, or no way, it's taking it's taking place ten years before Kirk takes command. Thirteen years before that was the cage. So Pike obviously commanded this ship for a long time, and then Kirk commanded it for at least five years, and. Then you go to the animated series before Pike, Captain Robert April commanded the Enterprise. He was the first captain of the Enterprise. So the Enterprise is 13 years older at least if we just go back to Pike. Uh, Pike obviously had been commanding it for longer than that because he was tired and ready to retire. And so... Okay, I'm going to say the Enterprise is maybe 15 years older than that. So, you're talking about a ship that's nearly 30 years old by the time you get to Star Trek Discovery, which might explain why Discovery, which is an experimental ship anyway, and is testing new technologies, may also be testing a new user interface technologies and things like that that will not become widespread in Starfleet until later, and so that's why the floating 3D holograms, and, you know, I'm just... The story was so awesome, I've really, I'm really not that interested in having to construct or explain the, you know, the explanation of why it looks different. Um, you know, Discovery's not a fan film. You couldn't just send them to one of the recreated... Uh, 60s Enterprise bridges around the country and have them film it there. Now, it would be funny if they went to one of those to do some filming um, <laughs> for the next season in which the Enterprise apparently uh, figures fairly heavily. It's part of the main story arc. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on board for season two of Discovery, definitely. There's um, 
it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I, I know a lot of people seem to have dedicated their lives and their fanish knowledge to demonstrating why they hate it so much. It's just a TV show. You should really just relax. I, there's a show that starts out like that. Oh yeah, Mystery Science Theater 3000. And, you know, I happen to agree with it. I mean, it's fun to piece together canon. I happen to think that retconning is a an enjoyable creative exercise. But it's, you know, when it gets to the point that people are fighting you over. I, there was, a, let me tell you this, there was a guy on Twitter who was one of the people, uh, you know, at signed in a discussion that someone added me to about, you know, explaining the differences between Discovery's technology and the Kirk era enterprise. And, you know, I offered my explanation, and this was like Thanksgiving or something. You know, I offered my explanation for why everything looked different. You know, love the show, it's pretty cool. The writing is really what matters to me. That, you know, I said my piece, and things went quiet for a long time. And then one of the participants in this exchange showed up February of this year and just started screaming at me. And the thing was, I had to go back and look and follow what he was responding to because I had completely forgotten the original exchange. If you're building lifelong grudges on this, you're missing the point of what fandom is about. So... And it's kind of funny. Yeah, I mentioned one of last year's podcasts that fandom was really letting me down because we had this, you know, we had this triple sucker punch of, uh, you know, people not liking the new Star Wars material. I mean, to the point of, oh, George Lucas should never have sold it. Well, <clears throat> he did because George Lucas knows he's not going to live forever. I mean, I'm sorry George Lucas is an old man now. I hate to point that out to you and burst your bubble, but he is. Um, you know, people hating on the new Star Wars material, people hating on you know, the fact that we have a female Doctor Who, people hating on the fact that we have a female-led Star Trek series that happens you know, around events that have not previously been chronicled in depth and looks different from the other shows, you know, and so therefore we must prove that it is wrong. That's such a waste of time. I mean, that's right up there with hate-watching. And, you know, I have friends who hate-watch stuff. Oh, you know, oh, man, Discovery really pisses me off. It's like, okay, um... Are you watching it? Find something else. You know, Star Trek Continues is still on YouTube. You can go back to your happy place. Or, you know, you can do like me and watch both and like both of them. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really getting to the point, and, you know, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, and I know I said it before... I'm I'm almost getting to the point where I have as much time for organized fandom as I do for organized religion. Which is to say, 
I don't have much time for either one. Doctor Who Christmas Special Twice Upon a Time. This was one of Stephen Moffat's best scripts. Still felt kind of rushed. Like, uh, you know, we, we know we're going to construct this plot that has to be resolved, but what we really want to focus on is the fact that you have the first and current Doctors together. Now, that being said, David Bradley is completely charming as the first Doctor, although in some ways I yeah, I love how he does it. I love how he sounds and how he looks. But this version of the first Doctor is, in its own way, about as much of a caricature as the Richard Herndall version from The Five Doctors. It's just that people seem to like it better because it's being handled with a bit more... A bit more reverence. And speaking of reverence, the identity of the captain played by Mark Gatiss. That was some nice fan service, but I would almost rather that he had been just any old bloke. You know, if the Lethbridge Stewart reveal had happened any earlier in the show, any earlier in the story, we would be asking if just anyone would have gotten this kind of TLC from Capaldi's Doctor. Or, you know, if that level of uh, interference and personal intervention is reserved for ancestors of, you know, the Doctor's most cherished friends. Um, neat character, but, you know, okay, we've gone forward in the Lethbridge-Stewart family line. We've gone backward in the Lethbridge-Stewart family line. I understand that these characters are standing in for, you know, the late, great Nicholas Courtney, you know, who we would love to have had on the show. But I don't want to get too mired in fan service. I'm really going to miss the team of Peter Capaldi and uh, of, of his doctor paired with Bill and Nardle's companions. I I don't want to offend any fans of Clara Oswald, but I kind of wish she had made her exit from the show sooner so Capaldi's Doctor could have had more time with these companions, which were much more ideally suited to him, you know, rather than a holdover from the Matt Smith era. Now about the new Doctor in question. Uh, you know, of course, we don't have anything to go on because it's a, it's a tradition that the new Doctor gets some funny zinger and immediately loses control of the TARDIS for some reason. That, that's getting kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, it's almost kind of an in-joke at this point, except that since the new Doctor is a woman, you know, immediately losing control of the TARDIS dredged up the same jokes as you wind up with from, you know, the 90s from people saying, oh yeah, you know, the Enterprise-D was fine until a woman took the helm and crashed it into a planet. Um, yeah, maybe this would have been a good time to uh, break from that tradition, which does not need to be a tradition in the first place. The really neat thing about Twice Upon a Time is it dealt heavily with a very real event, the Christmas Armistice of 1914. It's a very real moment in history where 
The tribalized fighting stopped and the combatants rehumanized each other instead of dehumanizing each other. I think the question implicit in Moffat's script for the episode is, could we do that now? Uh, you know, there's a there's a song by the police called Rehumanize Yourself. Can we rehumanize people with whom we have fundamental disagreements rather than continuing to demonize them to the point where it's easy to say they should be destroyed? Um, spoiler, they shouldn't be destroyed. Just something to think about. Season 4 of Black Mirror dropped in December. Uh... Hmm. Hmm. Every season of Black Mirror is kind of a mixed bag. I, I, I love it because it, it really is the, the heir apparent to anthology shows such as The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits. Now, the season premiere, everyone was raising, raving about the uh, USS Callister episode. Very atypical for Black Mirror, and... Um, I notice we have a lot of people saying, "Oh, there should be a there should be a spin-off," and you know, even to the point of in interviews, journalists asking the producers, "You know, what would you think of a Callister spin-off?" Um, if anyone wants my hot take on that, we don't need a USS Callister spin-off. Here's why: because the ending of that episode reveals that our heroes who never asked to be in the situation that they are in, um, they have traded in one dangerous dickhead for a completely different strain of dangerous dickhead. You know, they were dealing with the ultimate dude bro, and now they're dealing with, you know, guys behaving like we all know guys behave in online gaming, which is that they tend to drag their knuckles a little bit, even if the scenario is set in the far future. I don't see a path forward from that from a storytelling standpoint. You know, maybe they'll do a one-off follow-up in the next season of Black Mirror, which has, it has already been renewed for a fifth season by Netflix. But I don't think there is a pressing need for a Callister follow-up. Uh, Black Mirror is an anthology, and, you know, it should be allowed to continue. Um, there's an episode called Archangel involving a uh, an electronic device for monitoring one's kids and you know kind of keeping them in a an unrealistically safe cocoon you know not just from a monitoring standpoint but from how much of culture they're exposed to like if someone says something that you've decided you don't want your kids to hear if someone shows your kids something that they don't want to see, basically this implant that is in the kid's head, um, it fuzzes it out. They can't hear it. They can't see it. <clears throat> of course, the result of that is that, you know, you have a child with no experience of the, the downsides of real life, who has had no exposure to vice and so you know when those temptations arrive they've never had any exposure to them before and they just dive right in 
the conclusion of the episode was tragic and kind of inevitable and you know really just drove home the point that there is no piece of gadgetry that can make you a a better parent um crocodile was an interesting episode very bleak i i actually had to take a break from the show after that one because it was kind of like okay um you know there is no redemptive story here. You know, this is just dark and depressing for the sake of dark and depressing. However, after I uh, took a long break, you know, in the middle of the season, I came back and watched Hang the DJ, which may be my favorite episode of Black Mirror out of the entire series. Um, Very few hours of TV have messed with my head and my heart the way that Hang the DJ did. It's kind of like someone took the Ben Folds song from above, which has a uh, a refrain because the song is basically sung from the standpoint of you know, some sort of superior beings looking down on us foolish mere mortals, you know, having our hit and miss relationships. And there's a refrain in the song, you know, maybe that's how books get written, maybe that's how songs get sung. Who knows? Maybe they're the lucky ones, meaning the mere mortals. It's like someone made an hour of TV out of that thought. That's a fantastic song, by the way. Um, there's one scene in particular from you know, one of the montages of relationships that did not work that reminded me painfully of my failed marriage, and I almost turned the episode off at that point because it was, uh, it was a bit close to home. You know, it was a real kick in the gut. Um, but then it turns out to be, you know, an atypically, for Black Mirror, an atypically hopeful and even kind of romantic episode. Uh, the whole scene where Amy says that people get so worn down that they just settle for the next vaguely stable person who comes along. Um, that statement also hit very close to home. It was very, very sobering. My one fault with Hang the DJ is that it focused as much as it did on sex, but, you know, hey, we've thrown off the shackles of broadcast and even basic cable. We can be edgy because we want to. Um, that was really kind of a minor, minor gripe. I still haven't watched the last two episodes of the season yet. Um, I have to take Black Mirror in very small doses. Let's see... We have had a new web series called Stargate Origins. I'm only a few episodes into that. The uh, the webisodes are roughly eight and a quarter minutes each. Uh, eight, eight and a quarter minutes of content, and then the rest of the... They have a ten-minute runtime. The rest of that minute 45 is credits. Um, it's always good to see Connor Trenier again. Uh one of my favorite actors from Enterprise. It's interesting that, um, you know, a lot of this, a lot of Stargate Origins revolves around the character of Catherine Langford, who originated from an episode of Stargate SG-1. But aside from her just being there, there is no overload of mythology. This is Stargate stripped back to bare basics. It, it's almost produced like a fan film in a way. You know, there is something enduringly low budget about it, even though it, uh, you know, it looks great. You know, 
obviously some money was spent on it. And yet at the same time, it's like, okay, I've seen like three sets so far. Um, so. And Star Wars Rebels wrapped up its four-year run recently. And I haven't gotten to the end of that show either. I think part of it is I am in denial about it going off the air and I don't want it to end. Uh, Star Wars Rebels really is... If you don't like the movies that have come out, you really need to check out Rebels because it is one of the best things to come out of Disney purchasing Lucasfilm. <laughs> show where we talk about merchandise and various cool things. Of course, this is the first this is the first podcast I've done since Christmas to talk about these things. So there's kind of an overload that makes it sound like uh, makes it sound like I had a huge Christmas or that I've been buying stuff every week since. That's really not the case. <laughs> um, let's see. Lots of new Star Trek music, a four-CD box set, uh, the second and final collection of music from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which um, thankfully, thankfully included just the music I was hoping it would from the episode Battle Lines from the first season, which is, uh, is one of my favorite first season episodes of DS9, and Dennis McCarthy kicked butt on the music for that. And I am that guy who will continue telling you, you know, 25, 30 years later, Dennis McCarthy was kicking butt on music the whole time, even if he wasn't Ron Jones. Um, what else do we have? We have Jeff Russo's soundtrack from Season 1, Chapter 1 of Star Trek Discovery. Basically, these were the 2017 episodes before the show went on holiday break. And it's really interesting. You know, you listen to DS9... The uh, the CDs are arranged to where um, each of the show's main composers have a CD to themselves, and if you listen to it all in one sitting, yet yeah, there is a kind of a kind of a sameness. You pick up on that composer's house style, and something's really got to stand out to remind you. Oh, we're you know I'm listening to a different episode score than I was two minutes ago. Uh, Discovery that is not the case. It has been quite a while since music in Star Trek has been allowed to be this out there. I really like it. I mean, there's one there's one cue, and I'm trying to remember which one it is. I believe it's called Persistence. And I think it's from the Harry Mudd episode. I think it's from uh, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad. It's almost like a chiptune version of the Star Trek Discovery theme song that I thought was really neat. Um, anytime Jeff wants to roll out uh, Season 1, Volume 2, I am I am totally ready. Uh, a soundtrack that came out in very... This was a very short run, very limited edition. And 
<laughs> the, the funny thing is, this was uh, released in Italy only in a quantity of uh, 500 copies of this CD worldwide. And you had to order them from uh, a label in Europe. But the, uh, the music is from a movie called The Puma Man which is one of my all-time favorite Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes. And it just has this cheery, this very cheerful little tune that sounds like it might be a commercial jingle from the 70s. And so now I have a, a whole CD full of that because um, it's almost like a musical in-joke for myself. You kind of have to forgive me there. Um... And one thing I picked up for myself, I'll, I'll admit that I did get this one for myself, um, Screen Archives Entertainment, which is the distributor that handles all the film score monthlies, uh, internal label releases, which sadly Film Score Monthly no longer does those. This is one that came out several years ago, I think like 2012, 2011 or 2012, and uh, I've been wanting to get this ever since, but it was really expensive. Well, Screen Archives had a sale that was something like 30% off right around the beginning of the year, and so I finally picked up TV Omnibus Volume 1. <laughs> Funny thing is, there never was a Volume 2, because Film Score Monthly wrapped up its label releases shortly after this. Uh, volume 1, 1962 to 1976. It's just this... Um, smorgasbord of cues and themes from shows that uh, otherwise haven't gotten their own releases, although there is one that went on to get its own release, which was uh, Then Came Bronson. There's a whole disc devoted to that. Um, other shows covered here, these were all MGM shows. The Deadly Tower, The Phantom of Hollywood, The Eleventh Hour, Dr. Kildare, Assignment Munich, Assignment Vienna, or Assignment Vienna, Shirts and Skins, the aforementioned Then Came Bronson, which was a show that I believe uh, Robert Justman worked on after leaving Star Trek. And, let's see, okay, here is why I bought this. It has the complete soundtrack for the 1971 TV movie, Earth 2, which starred... Um, <laughs> it's an interesting collision. You know, it's a sci-fi piece about a, you know, a space station that becomes its own sovereign country, and you know, people have to decide what their freedoms are in this scenario, and how dependent they are on Earth. Um, yeah, it seems like unless you're growing something up there reliably, uh, you are very dependent on Earth. But you know, it's 1971. Skylab hadn't even flown, and uh, you know, so it's kind of a a pie-in-the-sky thought piece of a TV movie. It's got really interesting music, and that was what drew me to it. The movie starred um, Kira DeLay from 2001 A Space Odyssey and Marriott Hartley. <laughs> and so that's just two people you never expected to see sharing the screen. So, there's that. Also, uh, right around Christmas, the fine folks behind Star Trek Continues released two CDs worth of the original soundtrack music that was composed for Star Trek Continues that, uh, you know, was interspersed with music from the classic Trek library. Um, now, the 
the real, you know, piece de resistance in this virtual two CD set because it's, you know, it's basically MP3s. And you can download it for free. I'll include a link to it on the show page at thelogbook.com slash this tape. Um, you know, the real highlight of the whole thing is from the series finale to Boldly Go Part 2 because they had a real live orchestra uh, playing original arrangements of classic series music in different you know, different configurations than the familiar refrains that we had been hearing for years, you know, where it was used as library music, but also completely new music that started to reach forward to the motion picture. They got Craig Huxley to play the blaster beam on this thing, and how cool is that? I I know, I know, I'm the one soundtrack nerd who is within the sound of this podcast, and so I'm really kind of nerding out myself here. But still, it's cool. Um, lots of books. Lots of books for the kids. Uh, of course, we got the Star Wars children's book, Chewie and the Porgs. See, I told you we like Porgs in this house. Um, it's a cute little story that kind of retcons the fact that <laughs> Chewie just straight up uh, roasted and almost ate a Porg in the film. <laughs> that's not mentioned in the book, kids, because that's too disturbing for you. Sorry. Um, also picked up for Little C, the uh, the book Fiona's Feelings about Fiona the Hippo from the Cincinnati Zoo. He also got a Fiona the Hippo calendar to put on his wall. And if he will ever get this whole potty training down, he can start putting stickers of Fiona and Little Bub and space probes or, you know, whatever kind of stickers he wants on his calendar, because he actually used the potty, which is more than I'm sure you ever wanted to know. also really like the rocket science books for kids. Um, little one is finding that fun. Of course, you know, this, this is a child who's going to get a dose of planetary science jammed into his skull before first grade, no matter what, just because of who his dad is. You know, just because of my tendencies and proclivities, but um, these books certainly help. I got a couple of books. Um, the 50-Year Mission books by Mark Altman and Ed Gross. Now, uh, Mark was reporting on the production of the various Star Trek spin-offs for Cinefantastic magazine in the 90s. Ed Gross was doing the same for Starlog. So they had tons of notes and recorded interviews, and basically what they did is they formatted, they transcribed and formatted all of this stuff as a massive oral history of the entire Star Trek franchise. And there, you know, there are portions of it where you just can't put it down. There are portions of it where you're slapping yourself in the forehead because some of the female cast members were treated like crap. You know, I'm just going to straight up lay that on the table for you. Wow. I mean, you you look at the the day-to-day Twitter postings of the cast and crew of Star Trek Discovery and you really get the, you know, you really get the idea, okay, these people like working together. And, you know, we're in a different age. They're on a hiding to nothing. If there was someone who was, you know, if there was someone who was crapping the water supply on that show, they wouldn't be there for long. 
And that, kids, is how I met your Brian Fuller. Anyway, <clears throat> speaking of Discovery, uh, Eagle Moss has started the Star Trek Discovery Starships collection. The first one was the Shenzhou, and I just the other day got in the mail the USS Discovery, which is big and beautiful, and I haven't taken it out of the box yet because I want to video that for you fine folks. However, these things are expensive and... As much as I didn't want to, because I really like some of the other Federation starship designs in Discovery, like the Europa and the Gagarin, um, I'm probably going to have to duck out after Discovery just for financial reasons. I've got to be, yeah, I've got to cut that crap out and start saving money for the move to Utah. Oh, I haven't mentioned the move to Utah, have I? We'll get to that shortly. Don't worry. Um, Ben Robinson, who is sort of the over the overseer of the Star Trek Starships collections at Eagle Moss, has confirmed on Twitter, yes, we will be getting this new version of the classic Enterprise as glimpsed in the closing moments of the Discovery season finale. But it won't be for a while, so... Yeah, I may just cut my losses, do the sensible thing get out from under the subscription and then maybe circle back and catch that Enterprise when it's on sale, hopefully, at some point in the future. This is very sad because I really like the ship design. I like the Federation ship designs. I do not like the Klingon ship designs on Discovery. They, uh, you know, they look like they borrowed them from a second-hand, a Minbari second-hand warship lot. See what else from Christmas? Oh, life-size talking porg. Now that's a big hit. However, it's kind of funny because, um, you know, littlest one would grab this giant porg and bring him out to the car on the uh, drive to school in the morning. And sometimes he would think he was being funny. He'd toss this porg that's the size of my head over his shoulder into the cargo area. Well, I've begun availing myself of the uh, the pickup service at Walmart and at Sam's Club, where basically you place your order online for your groceries, you pay online, and then, you know, at a prearranged hour that you set up while you were placing your order, you pull into this little stall, tell them, you know, hey, I am this order. You open up, you know, your trunk, your back seat, whatever. They load the stuff into the car for you. And, you know, apparently everyone missed this giant furry thing <laughs> in the cargo area of my Mazda. And so I'm driving home, and the first bump I hit that knocks something over on top of it, all of a sudden there's this thing shrieking from the back of my vehicle. <laughs> or, or however it goes. <laughs> and really loud. And, you know, because it's this button in the belly of the Porg that, that triggers that sound chip. Whatever this is, that you know, this was like a you know, a two-liter bottle of something. It was something heavy, and it just landed on that button. And so this thing is screeching for 20 minutes on the drive home. <laughs> and I didn't pull over to do anything about it because how do you explain that to the state troopers when they ask why you're pulled over on the interstate? Well, officer, you see, there was a porg. <laughs> So, let's see what else. Oh, Target had a an exclusive uh, made by Basic Fun, whose uh, mini arcades I reviewed about a year ago. 
But this one was not a mini arcade. It's a handheld version of the Oregon Trail. So you can actually really play the Oregon Trail anywhere you go. I mean, you know, I, I keep mine in the bathroom so I can actually die of dysentery while I'm on the can, which seems kind of fitting somehow. And the casing is not, it's not styled like an arcade game. It's kind of a sort of a general impression of what people think an Apple II might have looked like, even if they've only read a vague verbal description of it. It's really kind of cute. Um, the game is executed very faithfully. However, my eyes are getting old and reading off of a screen that size, holy crap, it hurts. It hurts. Now, uh, New York Toy Fair happened in February, and holy cow, is there a lot of stuff that's uh, interesting. Now, Funko disappointed me by not announcing anything about any further waves of classic Batman. Now, I know I was raving about the, uh, the three and three quarter inch Batman action figures they did last summer, including the Batmobile. And, you know, they had said on Twitter that they were holding Robin back. You know, unless you got Robin with the Batmobile box set, which I did, so I'm, I'm good there. But the, you know, the big villains like the Riddler and the Joker and the Penguin, they were holding back for a second wave on that. That may have been a mistake because I'm not hearing anyone say anything about a second wave. And so, um, yeah. And right now they're concentrating more on, uh, on current licenses or recent licenses like Stephen King's It and uh, Ready Player One is another one that they've got. Um, I have noticed the Stranger Things figures being dropped down to clearance prices. Um, if I'm not mistaken, Amazon has the, the three-figure chase set of Stranger Things figures for $11.00. You know, you walk into Toys R Us, which you will soon not be able to do anymore, and, you know, you are lucky if you can pick up one action figure for $11. So, yeah, what happened? Why? Spider-Man, what happened? Um, however, uh, Funko's former cohorts, Super 7, which owns the reaction label that Funko's three and three quarter inch figures used to go out under, has landed some crazy licenses that I really want. Uh, there is a revised Universal Monsters lineup, including the Metaluna mutant from this island Earth, which I have always wanted a three and three quarter inch figure of. Um, classic Planet of the Apes but covering more than just the first movie. They have characters from the later movies as well. Not the recent ones, but the later movies in the original cycle that ended around 1971 or 72. I love that stuff. Um, and they also had placards at their display at New York Toy Fair, Super 7 Reaction did, uh, showing other upcoming lines, Ghosts and Goblins, the old arcade game. Remember that? Now there will be action figures. Rocky, Carrie, Army of Darkness. Okay, yeah, I'm definitely going to get uh, Ash and maybe a Deadite or two. Robocop, yeah, doing that. Teen Wolf, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to have him ride shotgun with Marty McFly. Um, and, and, Breakin', possibly encompassing also Breakin' 2, 
Electric Boogaloo. You know, who doesn't want action figures from that? Now, they did have finished prototypes of what may be the craziest toy license I've ever seen. <laughs> Legends of Luca Libre. So finally, <laughs> Mexican wrestling characters. Finally, I can have Strong Bad in a business suit as a three and three quarter inch action figure. Yay. The tiny arcades that I was raving about that I made part of my Christmas tree last year, more of them are coming, which is awesome. Um, let's see, what are they going to have? Frogger, Galaga, and Dig Dug. Those are the three that they've announced. There may well be more. And pretty soon my action figures are going to have access to a nicer arcade than I'm going to have access to, and I'll explain why. There, don't worry, nothing's happened to Arcadia Retrocade, but uh, I'm the one who's relocating. Now, coming soon, there is, uh, depending on which, which level of deluxe you want, it's either a $300 or $600 hardcover coffee table book covering the Wembley Stadium ELO concert in 2017. Now, this is from Genesis Publications, and they have done, uh, you know, really ritzy hardcover books about various rock music acts in the past. And they had announced several months ago that they would be doing a, a book about ELO. I was kind of hoping it would be about, you know, the band's whole history and not just one concert that happened last year. I mean, this really does go back to my... My gut feeling that I can't shake that Jeff Lynne is trying to engage in some revisionist history here. Or perhaps it's his management. I don't know. Yeah, $300 or $600. You know, I, I better get two and keep one of them in the wrapper for that price. There is already a great combo pack with a DVD and a compact disc covering that very concert. And, you know, it... it Contains notes by and is hand-signed by Jeff Lynne himself. But for that kind of money, you could get yourself really good seats at an actual ELO concert on one of the North America stops in 2018 and, you know, make the trip fly out to your venue of choice for that price. So I'm sorry that book is a hard pass. <laughs> So finally, that brings us to this. About the time that my oldest son was uh, not much older than my youngest is now, we went to a really nice restaurant in Fort Smith called Fuji Steakhouse. It's They specialize in hibachi grill stuff, but they will gladly just fix you a steak or a burger. They don't care. <laughs> They'll take your money. They don't care. It's really good, though. It's It's really good food. But they, uh, you know, they have the hibachi grills, you know, you pour the oil on them and set them on fire. 
which, you know, I had never been to one of those before, and uh, more importantly, my very young son had not been to one before. He and I were seated opposite each other, at opposite ends of this sort of U-shaped hibachi grill, because it was a family birthday, there were several people there, and somehow we wound up not sitting together. Big mistake. The, uh, <clears throat> you know, the chef arranges the shrimp and the beef and everything on the on the grill, starts it up, pours the oil on it, you know, which immediately explodes into these three-foot-high flames. And my kid just freaked out, because as far as he knew, Dad had just been set on fire! Oh my God! Um, spoiler, Dad had not been set on fire, but I could hear him screaming from across the room. And, uh, you know, so I had to get up from where I was and run over there and reassure him that, you know, no, his father had not just been immolated. Uh, <laughs> That's one of the reasons I have to go where my kids go. They're special kids. They're very unique. They have a very special mindset. I had a lot to do with raising both of them, and I continue to have a lot to do with raising both of them. But here's the story. Their mother, to whom I am no longer married, has accepted a job transfer to Lehigh, Utah, effective June of 2018. That's barely three months away. It's not even three months away as I record this. More like two and a half. She has asked me to move with them, not move in with them necessarily, but to, you know, get a job up there, get a place up there, sell my place here in Arkansas, and go with them. You know, I'm sure she doesn't want to raise the kids by herself. She doesn't want them to be separated from their father. She doesn't want to be separated from them and leave them here. So, uh, I've got to go to Utah. And that's where I could use a little bit of help. I have started a GoFundMe page that, let me, I'm going to go ahead and give you the URL here. It's GoFundMe.com slash LittleGreenMen2, the number two, U-T, LittleGreenMen2, Utah. I'm trying to raise a pretty good chunk of change there, but... Uh, my initial research showed that the rent was higher, you know, along with the first and last month deposits that you have to put in to get a rental. Now, you know, I will be selling my house in Arkansas, if at all possible, before I go. There is no guarantee, you know, with the house being out in the sticks and perhaps not being in as good a shape as it was when I bought it, because stuff has happened and there's never been the money to fix it. Definitely a, a fixer-upper there. So I'm not really expecting selling the house to be a windfall for me by any stretch of the imagination. So, yeah, the, the, number, that I, the number that appears on the GoFundMe that I'm trying to raise, yeah, it's kind of an eye-popper, but um, the work and research I've been doing since then, as I've been looking for you know a rental property to move into, um, I, the number I'm asking for may actually be on the conservative side. 
of what will be needed to move. I'll be ditching a lot of furniture here. I'll be ditching a lot of stuff here. Um, I will be taking my cats and my derpy dog, though. She may have to get used to being a great big inside dog. But let me tell you, over the winter months, she got to be a great big inside dog. She'd roll over, expose herself to underbelly, and let the cats walk all over her, as she is wont to do, because she knows once she is in that door, she is no longer in charge. So she's perfectly fine with being an indoor dog who has to go outside to pee and poop every once in a while. What this means for the podcast, well, I'm going to do my best to ensure that the podcasts do not get delayed or go silent for long stretches of time, like they unfortunately did in 2017. I'm already working on trying to bank some episodes to assemble and roll out ahead of time, so that the uh, you know, the months of silence that we had in 2017 don't happen. Other ways you can help, you can always shop in the logbook.com store, which is once again an active Amazon affiliate. You can contribute to our Patreon. I've got Amazon wish lists up. All help is appreciated, but really the GoFundMe right now is uh, where I'm focusing my efforts on because that is definitely going to be needed. Because I'm moving from Arkansas to Utah this summer, nothing can stop me. Short of an asteroid slamming into the planet, and I think that will stop everyone, but let's not go there. That's it for this month's long and rambling late-night edition of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. I hope you've enjoyed me going on and on about these things that I enjoy that are not old video games, and even a few things that are. Select Game will be back later this month. Might throw a little bit of science at you in that one, too. We'll see what happens. Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash this tape on FeedBurner and on iTunes every month that it's produced. If you like this and the logbook's other podcasts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash thelogbook. Your support has a direct impact on site hosting costs, podcast production, and other great content. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written, produced, and hosted by Earl Green also did the music, so you probably shouldn't give a synthesizer to Earl either. Especially not if there's a tape nearby. 